Hello and welcome to Rams Revealed. I'm your host, JB Long. Thank you for being with us. And today is a first, and I'm pretty psyched about it, to be honest, for a, a couple of reasons. As you're probably aware, the Rams are finally at the facility, getting closer and closer to actual in-person practices. So I'm looking forward to hearing what it's been like this first week inside the Rams bubble. And then secondly, I love doing this podcast because the NFL usually moves way too quickly to get to know everyone. And this show forces me to slow down and devote a couple hours to researching more about the people who make the Rams the Rams. And then we all get to know them better in these conversations. And I have to tell you, while we'll never run out of players to interview, this week has been a good reminder to me that there are also so many fascinating football stories to be found in the coaching ranks. So let's begin today with a pop quiz for our audience. And it starts like this. Tufts University, Tufts, is in Medford, Massachusetts, and they have a D3 football program that actually produced a couple members of the Rams coaching staff. So who knows the mascot for Tufts athletics and Tufts football? We'll have to go by the honor code here. So if you have it without Googling or before we talk about it and reveal the answer, shoot me the answer on social media so I know you're listening and we'll give you some kudos. Our guest is the answer to another trivia question, actually. Who is the longest tenured coach on the Rams staff? And it turns out it's assistant offensive line coach Andy Dickerson entering his ninth campaign with the franchise, and he surely knows the Tufts football mascot. So let's start there. Andy, welcome. Thank you for your time. And for those who don't know or haven't looked it up yet, the Tufts mascot is? The Jumbos. I could not believe the backstory on this. Do you recall it from your freshman orientation or anything? Uh, something with P.T. Barnum being a trustee of uh, Tufts University and something about the, the elephant jumbo got hit by a train and the ashes ended up in the athletic department or something. There was a, it was in one of the buildings and it got caught on fire and then the ashes were scooped up and um, put in like a, I think it was like a peanut butter jar or something. And then it remained with the athletic, uh, the AD, the athletic director, and that gets passed down between athletic directors. I believe it's something to do with that. Something around there. You're over it. That's what I search too. Yeah, we'll never watch The Greatest Showman and, and think of P.T. Barnum the same without thinking of Tufts football. At least I won't. Awesome soundtrack. Um, but as it turns out, you and Shane Waldron, now the Rams passing game coordinator, were teammates at Tufts? Yes, we were teammates at Tufts. He's a great above me. And uh, we played football together. We're the same fraternity. And then as he got into his uh, professional career, started as an intern with the Patriots, and then they won the Super Bowl second Super Bowl. I was being, I was a GA at Tufts at the time after I graduated because I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to be around football. So I figured I'd try to GA and uh, asked my coach if I could GA and he already had one. So coach Sampo said, let me get back to you. And he's like, okay, we can have another one. So I just became a GA, tried to figure out what I wanted to do and figured just be around football for another year. And, and then Shane called me one time, one day after the second Super Bowl. And it's like, Hey, you still want to work in the NFL? And I go, uh, yeah. He's like, okay, we might have an opportunity for you. So, and then here we are. That's, that's amazing. So we'll, we'll jump around in the chronology a little bit, but when he's hired in 2017, were you thinking like, what are the chances? Super small world? Um, not real. I mean, the NFL is a small world and I, you know, have been in it since 2004. So I thought there was a chance when, you know, Sean got hired and Shane was at Washington with him. Um, I thought there was a chance, but you just never know with, you know, how things go and staff turnover. And so, you know, hopeful, but 
Who was the better college player, you or Shane? I heard who was a tight end and long snapper, and you were an offensive lineman. Yeah, it was me. Okay, yeah, I think the uh, the school paper article that I read would have supported that. So, yeah. um, before we leave Tufts and start to make our way towards the modern day Rams, you also played alongside your brother there, which I always have to highlight. In fact, if our audience hasn't listened to our podcast with linebacker Troy Reader. He left Penn State to play with his brother at Delaware, which is an awesome story. I highly encourage you to go back and find that conversation. And Andy, you're from Delaware too, so we're kind of connecting all sorts of dots here. But tell us about your older brother. I think his name is Everett. Yes. Wrong, and what he's meant to your football journey. Um, this is awesome. So he's two years older than me. Started playing uh, together at Tower Hill uh, School in Wilmington, Delaware, and he was a senior. And I was a sophomore and our first game was against McCain and I was a guard and he was the tackle. So he's right next to me on the right side of the line, I think. Yeah. So the first play of the game, he blocks his guy, knocks him down and then knocks my guy down. So um, it was it was a uh, it was one of those moments. That it was a night game. It was the first time I it was first my first start. And I remember like. He blocked his guy, and then I, as a brother, just made sure like he knocked my guy down to make sure like I was all set. It was it was like a weird like I can still like feel and remember it. We won the game. It was the night game, but it was that was a pretty cool experience. And then I I mean I went to Tufts as well. And, you know, going was like okay, what do you want to do? I want to play football, but I want to get a good education. My dad went to Dartmouth. Uh, didn't really want to go the Ivy League route because you know, just the full-time nature of it. And I don't know if I would have gotten in, but, um, but then I went to Tufts and it's like, okay, do I want to follow my brother again? But ended up, he played on defense. I played on offense. So I had to block him a few times, but you know, for the majority, I didn't, you know, during practice and stuff, it was like that. But as far as the football career and just the influence, just that story is probably the best story. Cause it's just like a protective older brother. Like I'm going to block this guy. Okay. Now I can see my brother's okay. So it was kind of cool. Did he stick with football too and go into coaching or is uh, his path no, different? he's a clinical psychiatrist. So he's got his doctorate and now he's uh, big into mental health and developing his practice. And he actually works for Cheney University in Westchester, Pennsylvania, I believe it is. Got so. It. so he goes his way and you embark on this unlikely NFL coaching path, which I love. From a training camp internship with Washington to another internship with the ops department in New England. How much did you interface with Bill Belichick during your time with the Patriots in 0405? Uh, a good amount. I mean, it was a, it's a small, smaller staff in the building, you know, the football building and not like the area where everything is. So um, uh, just about every day. So, I mean, I used to get his dry cleaning because that was just part of the job as an intern. I used to get coffee for all the coaches on uh, Tuesdays for game plan night. Uh, some people, you know, all the orders. So, and I actually still have, there's a, I'm a hoarder, kind of, as you can see in the back of my office here, but I still have one of the order, the, the coffee order list that I just stuck in my uh, wallet so I could keep it. And so I knew, like, Brad Seeley didn't like coffee. He wanted hot chocolate. Mangini is, like, an extra large with a bunch of Splendas or something. Like it, I don't know if it's here. It might be at my house, but I still have that. So it's one of those to stay humble, not that I've made it, but just, like, I can go back to that. Like, you were a slappy. Like, you started here. And to start with the Patriots of all places, it's like, oh, this is easy. You just win a Super Bowl every year? Like, first year, well, that's – the goal's done. Now what? But, I mean, it's – to be – to have that experience, to get in there. And the only reason I – part of the reason I got it, because I was an intern with Washington, because Jamie Speronis went to Tower Hill. 
and he was the ops guy for uh, Steve Spurrier and was with him in Florida and then went with him to Washington. So the Tower Hill connection there. And I literally would call. So my season ended senior. My mom sent me the letter because Tower Hill, my school sends out, hey, here's potential internships that uh, are available to students. My mom saw the football one and sent it when it was at Florida. I couldn't do that one. And then she sent me it again. It was for Washington. So we get, Tufts got done their season, eight, played eight games. They get done their season uh, in like November. So like every other week I was calling or emailing Jamie Speronis. Now, again, thinking about it, it was like this November during the football season, and this guy's <laughs> getting emails from this kid who went to his high school and, and finally, uh, you know, talk to him or how the title total process, but uh, he called me one day, I was driving, I was back, I was in Delaware, and he goes, I'd be remiss not to give you opportunity because of your persistence. Like, I didn't realize that I was being overly persistent, because if somebody was calling me or tech, like, every other week in, in November, it's like, I mean, I got stuff to do. But that start of it, and then having that on the resume, being part of the operations, and making sure the guys were getting on the bus and leaving the Xerox complex in Ashburn, Virginia, and then getting there, and then I would go watch practice, and you have, like, you know, John Jansen and Bruce Smith there, Deion Sanders, uh, Lavernius Coles. And so like for somebody who loves football and you're in this world and it's just, I had, it was, I mean, it's the NFL and it still is the NFL, but it was just, I mean, deer in headlights, but to see these people who I've cheered for and seen on TV, it's, it's the NFL, this is Deion Sanders. There's, I mean, it was Jeremiah Trotter, like I used to be an Eagle. Like it was just, like for a 23 year old kid, you're like, what? So I interned there and then went back to Tufts for my GA year. And then the next year after that season, Shane called and then got into the Patriots and then just operations, that's how it started. So. so here's the question for keeping all those coffee orders straight. Did you get a ring for Super Bowl 39? I did get a Super Bowl ring. So that was, that was, that was a cool moment. Uh, Brian Smith, who was the director of operations, walked by the office one day and threw uh, a sizing key ring at me and it was like he was like yeah so I sized it and then one day we came into work and I think it was Smitty uh, or maybe it was Bear said you know Mr. Kraft wants to see you so then we go upstairs and he presents this Super Bowl ring which is in these like really cool boxes and it has Andy Dickerson 2004 and it's this I mean like the goal like my mom reminded me so you said when you were like five you were going to get a Super Bowl ring and then like only moms remember that stuff. So, and then I got it and it was just like, wow. What a way to effectively start. I mean, I'm sorry that Belichick denied you a more recent one. That's the one that I wish you had in your trophy case, but still that's pretty it, impressive. Yeah. It, yeah. It would have been nice to have won that game, but not that, not that that Super Bowl ring from the Patriots doesn't mean a lot, but as, as cool as that ring is, and it is cool. It was winning, you know, the, uh, NFC championship ring with the Rams means a little bit more because of my contribution, I feel, to the game plan or to like coaching and helping. So just, you know, being, a, you know, running errands and going to the airport and dry cleaning and all that stuff, though important and helps. So it's one less thing somebody else has to deal with. So I can contribute, but like with these, this group of guys and this coaching staff, and it's, I mean, because me and Shane were talking, it's like, hey, this is 15 years later. It only took us 15 years to work together again. And look, we're back in the Super Bowl after a year or two. So it was, it was kind of surreal and cool. And then we forgot um, that his mom and my mom both shared a hotel room, the, Jackson, <laughs> the Jacksonville one. And the, again, of course, I forgot about that. And he's like, she's like, yeah, I shared a hotel with some nice lady. Who, I was like, 
And then Shane's mom did the same thing. It's like, oh yeah, you guys were hanging out before that. So, I mean, it's unbelievable. But uh, yeah, the champion, uh, the NFC Championship ring with this crew, and just it was a special feeling. That that win in New Orleans, and that was a that was a fun time. All right, so we'll fast forward a little bit. You had subsequent stops with the Browns and the Jets to lead you eventually to the St. Louis Rams and even more to 2016 now with the franchise back in L.A. And that December, Jeff Fisher is dismissed with three games to play. And I wonder professionally, do you remember what's going through your mind at that point? Like when he walked in and told us? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, as an assistant coach, right, your fortunes are often aligned with the head guy. And so I imagine that starts a, a window of uncertainty for you professionally. Yeah, it, it, the, it was a shock, but it's one of those we, were, we, we weren't winning games. Like Atlanta just throttled us. Brandon Fisher actually sat next to me in these staff meetings. So he comes in and he goes, you'll never believe it. He's like, they just let my old man go. And I was like, what? And then, of course, my, they somehow they got the picture from – the all or nothing and that floated on Barstool about, you know, looking confused because, you, you know, Fish walks in and he's like, hey, guys, got Thursday night game versus Seattle and you're going to we're going to go up there and beat him, but you're going to have to do it without me. It just got let go. So as only Fish could, it just, it just like, it, it just shocks you. And after that, I've gotten to the point where nothing's like, I don't think much will shock me anymore, but you're always, I think, part of you is always thinking, or at least I am always thinking about what's going to happen because I've been part of, you know, once you become a coach, you're going to get fired. Like it's going to happen. It doesn't mean you didn't do a good job. It's not that it's not necessarily a reflection on you directly, but it's more of a political regime change where you just, everybody gets tossed out with the whole regime and it and totally makes sense. Cause if you're trying to start something new, then you want to bring your own people in that you trust and you know, and you have success with. So, you know, I think, not that you're always worried about it, but every year it comes to an end. And in the coaching profession, there's naturally a transition, whether it's you get let go or there's a better, there's another opportunity that you want to pursue for whatever reason. So when you get into coaching, you know, you're going to get fired, but as long, it's not like you get fired from some job because you malpractice or something, you didn't do anything illegal or something that you're bad at your job. It's just, you're not my guy. I don't know you. And I'd rather have my own person to do this job where you're, going to get fired. It's going to happen. Most likely. Rarely do coaches go unfired, I believe. So so given that, Sean McVay is hired shortly thereafter, and he chooses to retain three coaches, Bones Fossil and Skip Pete, both now with the Cowboys, and you. And you join forces with Aaron Cromer. And I wonder how you would describe your role in terms of your specialties, and then what responsibilities he and Sean delegate to you as an assistant offensive line coach over the course of a given week. Uh, relationship with Chrome is great. Uh, I became, he told me that, Hey, you're going to be responsible for the blitzes, the pass protections, uh, picking up the blitzes. Like you are the master, you are the blitz master. You know, everything, you know what they're going to bring, you know, what the patterns are, this is your role. So someone wants to know something about a blitz. That's your job. You'll figure out the run game later in the week as we go on. But this is like, this is how I've operated before my system. So, you know, I give the information, present it, and then, hey, here's my plan, here's how it fits our rules to block these pressures. And then other people say, well, maybe it's this, have you thought about this, trying to figure out how to, what the pressures are, how to present them to the guys, how to drill them, you know, stunts and pickups, and then present them with the information and to see them pick up a blitz, like that, that's, that gets me fired up. It's exciting, like, okay, we, we presented the information, obviously it was communicated, and you know, obviously they're professional football players and they're really good at it, but 
just to see when that stuff happens and you see things happen that you've worked on. It's like, okay, there's a contribution. I've contributed, you know, it's not about, I just want to be part of something successful and help on the way up. So it's just good when a, you can coach somebody up and help somebody like, oh, I saw that. And remember you showed that or something like that. So it's, that's, that's the main course of it. So I'll drop the cards and help run the scout team. And, you know, so you present to the guys, you run the cards, make sure the blitzes and just, you know, teach them in the classroom because you're a teacher and then teach them on the field and, Hopefully by game day, you know, after the game, everybody's happy and just keep it moving. So Andy, we've kind of journeyed to present day and I'm sure we could do a whole separate podcast on this question alone, but what has it been like at the facility this week as you prepare for a 2020 season unlike any other? I don't have much of a life besides this building. So when we had got kicked out, it was a real bummer because I didn't, you know, I haven't grocery shopped for about, 17 years or I didn't have a coffee pot I had nothing so it was really I had to reframe how I like I was like okay Instacart okay what's this do oh it gives me groceries that's awesome um I had to get a French press for coffee because we had we still zoom meetings and stuff so my whole life was turned upside down because it's like you wake up I'll come into the office do a little bit of work maybe get a workout do something productive and then leave and so it gives you something to do to be back in the facility and to see like the coaching staff and to see their support staff, Reggie, Joey, the, the strength guys, like Nando. And I mean, it's just the first time we could lift as a staff where we had the time, the music's bumping. There's like you know 15 of us in there or whatever. And it's like, it felt like it wasn't a club, but it felt like a club because there was people, there was energy. Like I was dancing around and it was just hype because it's like Aubrey's in here. Let's go. Okay. You know, Thomas Brown, we got a new coach. Okay. What's going to lift? And Sean's in there and it's just, you know, E and DeShane and everybody was just, you're just fired up to like, just be around your people that you, I spend more time with than anybody else. And I spend more time with, you know, Aaron and Zach Cromer than anybody else in anywhere for the past years. And it's been great. So you get to see those people that you just always only have seen on Zoom for multiple months. And it was just like the energy and it's like, oh, football, like this is, is all I've done. So to be back in the building, is phenomenal. And you know, the protocols and all the things and the safety and, you know, the support staff we have here is, haven't had a break. They've been working on rehab guys and trying to get this place right. Like Reggie and his crew, Tyler and Byron, like they just work their behinds off our operations staff, you know, Chris, Haas, Sophie. I mean, it's just what they've done to make this possible for us and make this this ecosystem that we can thrive in and work and do our job just to have a chance. I mean, we have a huge tent. That, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to be back at work. Like it's not, it's the end of, this is the NFL. It's a blessing to be here. There's a million people who want my job, like in a lot of, job, a lot of jobs around here. So to, to be able to do that is just, I mean, I can't, it's phenomenal. It's that's, your ops back, that's your ops background talking there. I can, I can hear your passion for all well, those. I, 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 under, I know, and I see people when I meet them, like you're an ops, like you are out of your mind. Like, I, I mean, I, without ops, I wouldn't be where I am today, but I understand that they don't get thanked enough. They only get told, it's like, they're like the electric company. Nobody calls electric company and say, thanks, my, my, everything's working. Like, so I try to do that with all, like, cause I've worked, you know, when you're a GA and you're D3 school, you're, and I mean, cause I used to go get, you know, dip from, you know, coach Samco, he liked the Copenhagen black. Cause that's what he liked. And I had to go do film drop off. So we drive and do tape exchange. And then they have to go one, two on the XO's machine to cut the tape. And then you have to go get bagels and cream cheese for the players. So. I was like, well, if I'm to run around and do stuff for D3 people, I can do Belichick's dry cleaning and go get coffee for the staff. Like, and so 
I understand. And operations is hard, but again, without them, we don't operate. Like they, you know, the planes, the hotels, like all the like, they just put out fires all day. They just okay, what what else is that going on? Okay, I got to help this person. Great, and they don't. They just yep, go boom. So I appreciate that because I know without them, we don't exist. We can't function without them because we're all bald. And it's like, well, where are my tickets? Where's this? How do I do this? How do I eat? What do I do? And it's like, here you go, here you go, here do this, here do this, do this. I mean, the fact that we have our you know our food that's all like prepackaged now, like. It's all portion control. Like, I'm going to be great with this, you know, so. Our, you know, our dietitian Joey, got this note meal thing, which so it's like ordering uh, Grubhub, which I've done a lot of because of all this stuff. And then you're like, oh, wait, I was portion control and the food just brought, I was right here for me. I don't have to think about it and wait in line. Like, I mean, that just makes it so much easier. Again, you're not around people. So there's no, you know, we have masks and all those things and the connexons and tracing, but all those things that those guys did over this whole time that we were working and off, they've been working to try to make this a, a place where we can come and do our job. Like it's like, the, we have some amazing people in this building. It is phenomenal. And so to be back around all of them, like it's, you get energy, you get juice. Like our video guy, new video guy, Dan Demetrison, just VPNs and all these things from that we can function as normal coaches. It's like, how, how is this possible? So to be back and see all these people, the energy and the juice, it's, it's awesome. Now that you're back at the facility, tell me if I'm right or wrong, more than any position group, the offensive line probably suffered the most from not having any in-person work so far in 2020. How are you going to overcome that, especially without joint sessions or preseason games? Uh, I don't know if they suffered the most. I mean, it's, it's I mean, nobody's played in practice and done anything through a pandemic. So uh, the good thing about our crew is we have a bunch of guys who've played in game. I mean, we have Andrew Whitworth, who's the consummate pro professional leader, you know, so knowledgeable, you know, Rob Havenstein, you know, Austin Blythe, you know, at center. And we have guys who've started gaming. Austin Corbett started. We have a lot of guys and, you know, that group, that communication is at a premium, but, you know, I love all those guys and it's just great to be back with them. So I'm excited for the work and, not, you know, when you love what you do, you don't really work a day in your life. So, yeah. You know, while we were all away from our, from our desks, uh, we as an organization participated in several Zooms uh, that the Rams hosted, making sure we're attuned as an organization to racial and social justice issues our country is, is again confronting this summer. And Andy, I have to say, your testimony was one that really resonated with me. I, I learned a lot from, I know I speak for a lot of us. And you've referenced your high school here in passing a few times too. Would you mind kind of summarizing all of that to the best of your ability for the benefit of our audience too? Because I think they would love it. Um, don't remember exactly, but just being biracial, I know my father's African-American, my mom's white. I went to a you know predominantly white private school, but I went to, you know, growing up in the black church, Bethel AME. And so just that, you know, just it's like a, just having to deal with the potential of, okay, I'm light skinned. I could pass for white, you know, I'm a passing person of color, but am I white? Am I black? Is my hair long? Do I have my Afro? Is my beard? So just the dueling, you know, the con, con the conflict, the dueling, all the things you just, you know, you have your own identity, but then how do people see you? So just being in places where in spaces where you don't know if, you know, am I totally here? Am I totally on that side? I'm right in between. So it's just, it's an ongoing thing, but as sad as all the things, you know, that have transpired, it's kind of given me another boost of energy and to try to make this 
like, what am I doing to try to help solve the problem is kind of which I think I remember saying like, okay, well, the issues come from lack of communication, you know, when there's lack of communication, negativity fills the gaps. So that's something we say, you can apply that to just about anything in life. So in that case, so my whole thing was I'm trying to, and sometimes it's hard to have conversations between races if you're not sure and you don't want to be uncomfortable, which you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable to get any growth. So I try to put it as a point where, okay, I'm part white, I'm part black. I've seen kind of both sides, not exactly the, you know, I don't have the experience, shared experience of other people necessarily that are full white or full black, but I have a taste of each. And then there's that in between where, how does that really work? So my whole thing was just, if you're not comfortable talking to somebody who's of the opposite, you know, if you're a white person and you don't feel comfortable asking a question to a black person or vice versa, or a black person who doesn't want to talk to a white person or ask a question, don't want to feel awkward, I say, come ask me. Like, I'll, I'll try to help out and maybe be an in-between. I just, I forget who said it or where I read it, but it was like, what are you going to tell your grandparents? Or what are you going to tell your grandkids you did during this moment? And so when you go home and I talk to my mom and talk to my dad and hear the stories that they told me, because they were married in 1977, I believe. And so then you have a black man and a white woman and my dad was still in Hanover at Dartmouth. And then, you know, then she moves to Wilmington and then my black grandmother and dealing with all that stuff. And so, you know, the good thing, you know, Corona has been not the best thing for a lot of people, but one of the blessings out of this, is I got to spend five weeks with my grandmother, Edith Dickerson, who's 98 years old. So you know, talking about a blessing, like to be able to go and sit and just talk. So I go get some Capriati subs. I get a couple beers. She never wanted any. I offered it to her, but she'd probably get like, um, like some peach juice or some orange juice. But I got to go spend time with my family, which I don't do because of football, because there's usually, I'm just usually away and don't go home for a bunch. So I got to spend time with her and just like listen to her stories. And she would tell me stuff and the stuff that I haven't heard before. And just to spend time to be 38 and have a 98 year old grandmother that you get to spend time with, like what a blessing that is. So mm. for all the bad that's happened, I choose to have a positive outlook. And also with that, you know, my school Tower Hill being a white private school, they had, they had a couple zooms and things like that. So I jumped on those and was able to, which I didn't even realize, you know, somebody asked a question about accountability and what the repercussions would be on certain actions. And so the person didn't really get a good answer. So then I jumped in and asked the same question. And then I got an answer or more of an answer. And then these, these, uh, this group of uh, alumni who are much younger than me reached out to me and want me to do more. So I was like, well, what did I do? I tried to make, tried to try to affect and influence and try to do some good. So I'm going to try to, even from the West Coast, going to try to influence and try to help and make my private school better. And so whatever I can do to help with, to do something, like I'm, I can't do nothing. And so I've realized I haven't done enough. Well, I don't know if this is universally true, but when I look in an offensive line room, that position group strikes me as like one of the more racially diverse places I've ever observed. And not only racially, but like socioeconomically and in terms of age range, you know, for instance, at the end of last year, you've got 38 year old Andrew Whitworth at one tackle and 22 year old Bobby Evans at the other. And, you know, Andy, I just think as a coach, you must really have a gift to relate to and teach and and motivate that, that swath of humanity. And I just give you a lot of credit for, for paying it forward, not only with the Rams organization, but also with, with your high school and, and every other area of life that you walk through. So good on you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm just, I mean, it's like, I just think back, like, man, I, sh- well, I should have been doing more earlier. Like, what was I doing? I was worried about me. I was being selfish. I was worried about trying to football. It's like, there's, you've, I've had so much opportunity and privilege. And when you think about it, and I've, you know, my friend, uh, who I got to spend some time with as well because of this, 
he is a diversity uh, coordinator chair at a private school in Brooklyn. And he's been doing this type of work for the past, as long as I've been doing football, he's been doing this stuff. So you know, give me multiple books. So I read three books this summer and just the conversation I've had with him because the same things that happen in these private schools happen in the NFL, happen in every corporation because these are yeah. private organizations. So there's a lot of a carryover and you just see about how blessed you are like to be where I am. Like there's a privilege to be in the NFL. It's a privilege to be a coach. Like you, these things aren't, everybody doesn't have these things. So it's just. Well said. Before we lose you, let me just say thank you on behalf of uh, our audience and the Rams organization. It's been great getting to know you a little bit better. Enjoyed your story. Thanks for having me. I just hope it was a good one. <laughs> a very good one. Be safe in the bubble. Take care of the Rams, the offensive line, the coaches, and the players. Thank you very much. Have a good one, guys. All right. Once again, our thanks to Rams assistant offensive line coach Andy Dickerson for sharing his uh, NFL coaching journey with us and giving us some insights inside the Rams facility as the Rams are ramping up towards padded practices and training camp 2020. To our audience, before you get on with your day, we'd love it if you took a moment now to let us know that you're listening. Please rate us, leave a review, especially if you're listening on an Apple podcast. We read and appreciate every single one of those. And also subscribe, no matter what platform you're on, so that you can be notified when the next episode is available. For Andy Dickerson, Matt Israel, Joey Hirsch, and Tiffany White, I'm JB Long, and this is Rams Reveal.